and issues from climate change, oceans, forests, pollution, solar storms, the economy, and peace. Every Tuesday at 5 p.m. right here on Community Radio, WERU-FM 89.9, and all over the world at WERU.org. That's Radio EcoShock, Tuesdays at 5 p.m. You're listening to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill and on the web at WERU.org. WERU is made possible by the generous support of our listeners. Thank you. It's 4 o'clock and it's time for Main Currents. And this is Main Currents, independent local news, views, and culture. I'm Amy Brown. <laughs> Amy Brown. This is our second Main Currents of the month, the one that we're dedicating to the upcoming elections and all the politics that entails. My regular guests for this series are Professor Amy Freed and Ralph Chapman, former state legislator. Amy Freed is the chair of the Department of Political Science at the University of Maine. She oversees the Maine Policy Scholar Program at UMaine and has researched and written extensively about public opinion. And Ralph Chapman served four terms in the state legislature for Blue Hill and several surrounding towns in Hancock County. He served as a Democrat, then an Independent, and finally as a Green Party member. And Ann Luther's here with us this month as well, and you will probably recognize her voice and know her as the host of Democracy Forum, which airs here on WERU in this time slot on the third Friday of every month. She'll be on this coming Friday. She's also the treasurer and past president of the League of Women Voters of Maine and leader of their advocacy team. The Democracy Forum program is produced in collaboration with the League. And later in the program, we're going to be talking more about their work and also opening the phone lines to callers. Uh, in the meantime, you can email any questions or comments to news at weru.org. But first, we have on the phone with us, I believe, uh, Professor Amy Freed. Are you there, Amy? I sure am. Great. Welcome back to Maine Currents, all of you. Anne's been here before in Maine Currents as well. And uh, there are heads nodding. That doesn't work that well in radio, but they're here for Thanks real. Thanks for having us, Amy. <laughs> Thank you. Anne. That's Anne. And that's Ralph. So you'll recognize voices. Oh, you too. Hi, Amy. <laughs> so everyone, just jump into the conversation whenever you want to. I uh, the questions won't necessarily be directed at any one person in particular. But let's start with uh, talking about impeachment, actually. And quickly, I want to get into the whole caucus debacle that sort of unfolded in Iowa maybe about to unfold in Nevada. But, Amy, uh, you had mentioned in particular this is something that uh, you could weigh in on. I'm, I'm particularly interested in how any of you feel about whether or not that's going to play any kind of role in the 2020 elections. By then, will there be like 20 mini crises later and it's completely forgotten about and both sides are claiming that it, the process has fired up their voters. Does that really, do you think that's really the case? And uh, Amy, do you want to go first since you're, you're not in the room with us and can't see the body language here? Sure. I mean, you know, it's really hard to say for sure what is going to persist, but I would say there are some things that so far have persisted that are, that are major kinds of issues. At least um, I think that there's some that are laws that were passed before the 2018 election, the health care vote on repeal of the ACA and also the the tax bill. I think those are still in play and health care certainly is an issue will be in play. And I'd say that even though um, we'll get further away from 
impeachment, I think there's a lot of reminders of it. And every time there's any kind of news that comes out uh, that's related to one of the people in the cases, there's certain things that President Trump does. I mean, we know, for example, um, the book by John Bolton will be coming out probably. It will. <laughs> um, that will cause an, another round of news coverage. And it just really there are a lot of things that, that are just going to serve as reminders for the overall story, whether it's uh, legal or uh, breaking news. I'd also mention that the Bangor Daily News did some research where they asked people what were the most important issues for them. And the, the two top issues overall were health care, so that persists. But this, uh, uh, and then also corruption as number two. And depending on how one sees the whole uh, impeachment situation, that, that could relate certainly to the issue of corruption. Anybody else want to weigh in on that? Well, and the Blagdanovich story was breaking just this afternoon, right? The commuting of the sentence for um, the uh, Illinois former governor who'd been in prison for on corruption charges. And um, the story broke just this afternoon that President Trump had commuted his sentence, which brings back the theme that you were mentioning there, Amy, about cor- corruption and tolerance for corruption. And this also uh, plays into the question of who is responsible for maintaining our constitutional democracy. And the framers of the Constitution explicitly did not make it the citizenry. The people who are responsible for the maintenance of our democracy are elected officials. And that is why the impeachment was, in my mind, an important step that the uh, House of Representatives had duty to do rather than simply the power regardless to do. Regardless of the political impact, yeah. Regardless of the political impact. And if you think about courage in politics, uh, the courageous act is the one that is done in spite of it being the more difficult or the mo- more politically uh, unpopular or the uh, more damaging to one's own personal career. And so it seems to me the question is how do we encourage courage amongst our elected officials. All right. Good question. Yeah, look at that backlash that Mitt Romney's gone through and, and knew that he would. Now, that's a perfect example of what I would have hoped our senator, senior senator, would have done. Uh, she often tries to emulate uh, uh, the senator, Chase uh, Margaret Chase Smith, uh, who had the... Uh, uh, famous Declaration of Conscience, which was a, uh, in spite of the fact that she agreed with the the, the basic policy matters that Eugene, that uh, I'm sorry, uh, Senator McCarthy had had brought up. Uh, nevertheless, she didn't agree with his uh, his tactics and, uh, and and called it out. Now that was a courageous step, and she's forever known for it. Now. Our current senior senator had opportunities several times in the past few years to take courageous steps uh, and, uh, in my opinion, has uh, squandered each of them. All right. So moving on, caucuses, what happened in Iowa? Does anybody else, I mean, not to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but is it preferable to think that that was that incompetence was like that extreme i mean really anybody 
did that set off warning bells in anyone else's mind? And and also, there are already alarms being put out by some of the people in Nevada about the process they're going to use there. I mean, what are you hearing about this, Amy? I just think I hear a couple of things, you know, untested software, untrained people run by not professionals, but by party people, not election professionals. I mean, it's one of the reasons why I think we're all relieved Maine is not going to have a presidential caucus this year, because if you look back at our history of it, 2016 was not a great year in our caucus experience, and the Republican primary in 2008 was not that great either. So, I mean, I think these caucuses can get messy, and um, that's you know one of the reasons why I'm glad we're not doing one this year. But what are you hearing, Amy? Well, I would say uh, with Nevada, I mean, uh, actually with Iowa first, I, I would agree. I think that there just were a lot of, you know, difficulties in using the system. Besides uh, all the reasons that Anne mentioned, I'd also add that this year the Iowa Democratic Party decided to report um, three different metrics. Uh, which in the past they hadn't. The first was the initial preferences of caucus goers when they arrived. The second was the the vote among caucus goers, as it were, once they had realigned, you know, because you have to get at least 15% if someone is under 15%. A candidate is under 50%. The supporters have to move to someone else. So the second round took into account the realignment and then the number of delegates uh, of, uh, at a state level that to the state party convention received by the different candidates, what they called state delegate equivalents. It very, seems very confusing, you know, really to keep track of it all. But in the past, actually, if you go and you look up the results from the Iowa caucus, you usually just see the state delegate, delegate equivalent. So this was an effort to have greater transparency, but I think it also led to a lot of different, a lot of confusion. Um, yeah, and the Nevada situation has even more complications, which I'm happy to speak to in a minute if anyone wants to hear. <laughs> I think Ralph wanted to weigh in, and then let's get back to Nevada. Well, the transparency matter, I think, is important because it's uh, one potential conclusion is that the messiness of the Iowa caucus may have been there in previous caucuses, and but not seen because of the non-transparency of the earlier steps. And uh, I, I think this is a strong argument for increased transparency because with increased transparency, one can fix problems and, and try to boost uh, citizen confidence in the system again. But uh, I, the thing that seems to be just really, really bad judgment is the use of the app without having people practice on it, test it out. It sounds like a lot of people hadn't even downloaded it to their phones yet. We're just going to do that on the night of the election or something. And caucuses are complicated enough as it is. But then to add into that an app that no one has practiced on, that they haven't been adequately trained on. Right. And and I'm, I mean, you know, I've worked in the software industry myself for a while, and you can see, you know, these projects are always late. It's like doing something on your house. It always takes longer than you think. There are always problems you don't anticipate. You're always running over. But to run 
a big full-scale operation like that on something that had never really been used before, pretty risky. And how did that get by people? That's that's the part that just puzzles me is how anyone, I mean, I'm not involved in that, and I can see right from the, you know, the, but anyway, so Nevada, the, it, Iowa's over with, or <laughs> maybe not, but what's going on in Nevada, Amy Freed? Well, uh, Nevada's also going to have a caucus, but in their case, they're having these early vote locations as well. Um, And with the early vote locations, you go in and you can fill out a ballot. However, what makes it complicated is that they're they're trying to um, deal with the reality that in a caucus, you have that 15% threshold and people can move from one candidate to another. So what Nevada is doing, the Nevada Democratic Party is doing, is they're giving people a ballot where they can list in sort of like a, almost like a ranked choice way, but not exactly, um, up to five spots uh, for different candidates. However, one of the things about it is that you have to use three spots. So that could be for three different candidates, you know, first, second, third choice, um, or it actually could be just one candidate or two candidates if you did three spots. So you could put the same candidate in, you know, three times. However, um, if you don't list three, whether it's the same person or multiple people, your ballot will be voided. And I, when I learned this yesterday, I just started to get very concerned about how much voters or caucus goers uh, sort of (laughs) know about this, you know, and and whether there's been sufficient voter education, because we had a lot of voter education in Maine before we started using ranked choice. League of Women Voters was a part of that, Secretary of State's office. I don't know how much people in Nevada know that. So that's one element of, of the mess of it. Um, other things, though, that, that are concerning is, is simply how they're going to take that information, at the, all the information for people's preferences from these absentee ballot sites, uh, where turnout evidently has been quite high, um, has to get transferred to the correct precinct where that person would have voted anyway, and then get integrated with the live caucus results. So if a candidate at a particular caucus site is only getting 14%. It could be that the preferences from the absentee ballots for that that precinct could bring them up above the threshold. But, you know, people will have to have that information in a timely way so it will all work out. And then finally, there's the transfer of the information to the state party, which I think they've given up on their app, but they were going to use some kind of Google sheets like a google doc to 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 do that so really a lot of people putting out alarms about that in advance yeah and each of these three things are problematic i've heard more about the third thing than i have of the first two but i think the first two really do have the potential to be messy because also it is also a case where it does not seem like there's very good training that's gone on for the people who are running the caucuses at the precinct level when is that caucus amy it's a week from Saturday. And early voting has already started there. Right. Yeah. And and they're only having certain dates for early voting, so it's not going on in a continuous fashion. There have been pictures of people just kind of uh, 
that there's been a lot of demand for that, that a lot of people wanting to participate in that and reporting that uh, that's already well underway so at a regular caucus for anyone who hasn't participated and hasn't followed this process basically people <clears throat> excuse me, go to different corners of the room or whatever based on what candidate they want. It is almost like a, uh, we're talking before we went on air, sort of like a board game kind of version of ranked choice voting almost. If your corner that you went to doesn't have enough people in it to meet a threshold, then the other teams will start trying to coax you over into their corners to join their numbers. And uh, so to try to, so that part is already a little bit convoluted maybe convoluted sounds negative I don't mean it to be but it's complicated then adding into that as as Amy was just saying the numbers of the people who came beforehand I mean is this the first time that Nevada has tried to do it early voting combined with their caucus process or have they not done caucuses before does anybody well, know well they have done caucuses before and they did do early voting before but it's my understanding that they had not done this system where you could indicate multiple preferences yeah. and that you had to include three, you know, fill in three different, three different, um, you know, circles. And I know that um, when Maine had its last caucuses, at least on the Democratic side in 2016, uh, it was possible to vote absentee, but that did not allow people to pick multiple preferences. So. That at least was a little bit easier to take that information and add it in. Amy, were the, were the Democrats u using um, that proportional delegate allegation in 2016 like they are this year? Yeah, there has been this requirement. Uh, there's no winner. There have not been winner-take-all mm -hmm. caucuses or primaries for the Democrats for a very long time, for decades. So obviously they're trying to give people those extra choices to make sure that if they do take advantage of early voting, they're not disenfranchised mm -hmm. by having voting for a 14 percenter and sure. just being out of luck, right? And I think that is a, a, a good thing in, in theory, certainly. But right. I just worry about the way that it's been organized, that it could just not work out very well. Yep. Um, and they pro I don't think they, I mean, if I were had been consulted, I would say don't require that people fill out three circles you know someone wants to go in and just fill out one and you let people fill out multiple ones that that that's fine i mean we certainly don't have that requirement in our ranked choice voting no we um, don't you know you could vote for a single candidate you could vote for you can fill in two circles you know whatever you what you want um so that that to me is concerning yeah do the different states have different thresholds of how many candidates for each party are going to be on the ballot in some states do they have different candidates who are going to be showing up in their primary or in their caucuses or how, do, how does that work uh, Ann Luther's nodding yes well I mean each state has its own ballot qualification system so the presidential candidates have to qualify separately in each state and um, you know the candidates who qualified here in Maine you know most of the big ones are here Michael Bennett failed to qualify here even though Jared Golden endorsed him right and then I mean subsequently he withdrew from from the race so I mean but he was on uh, on the ballot in New Hampshire I believe um, so e each state's qualifying 
threshold is different, and the presidential candidates have to send their team into each of the primary states and qualify for each state ballot separately, and it could be different ones on each state. Amy, I know we only have you for another minute or so before we need to let you go so we can open the phone line, so I want to just let you uh, add any final thoughts or anything you want to let the listeners be aware of or ask them to consider before you take off. Sure. Um, I'd, I'd go back to this um, impeachment issue, which, you know, clearly has been very divisive uh, in the country and I would think also in the state. So I think it, it actually, in the question of what kind of impact it could have, it could really motivate people on both sides to come out and vote uh, because clearly supporters of President Trump were very unhappy about the impeachment while, you know, opponents or, were thought it was a lot of them thought it was a good idea and then of course there were people who just even if they didn't like trump didn't think it was the right thing to do given that it was an election year i i do think it's going to have some impact though on senator collins's race in part because of some of the things that she said in explanation afterwards which i think will also be remembered as we go forward that you know her statement about um thinking that the president had learned some lessons and then changing that to hoping that he had learned some lessons. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm just seeing that every time something new happens, and I know it's only a little, you know, a couple weeks since the impeachment vote uh, or, you know, in the trial, the, the trial vote, but people seem to be bringing that up again. Uh, so I, I, that could have some kind of impact. All right. Thanks for talking with us today, Amy. We'll have her have you back again as we continue this elections 2020 edition of Maine Currents in upcoming months. We appreciate you joining us by phone today. Great. It's been my pleasure. Take care. That's uh, Professor Amy Freed, Chair of the Department of Political Science at University of Maine. And uh, we're going to shift gears now and talk about uh, League of Women Voters. We have Ann Luther with us. But let me just remind people that you are listening to Maine Currents here on WERU-FM. I'm Amy Brown. Uh, my guests in the studio are Ann Luther and also former uh, State Representative Ralph Chapman. And phone lines are open now if you would like to join this conversation talking about elections 2020, a little bit about primary and caucuses. We'll get back to a little bit before the program ends. I also want to touch on the Michael Bloomberg effect. (laughs) Uh, But first, I want to talk about uh, Anne and the work that she's doing. It's the 100th anniversary of the League of Women Voters. Right. It was Valentine's Day Day last week. Thank you. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. And uh, that's also the same uh, 100-year anniversary of women's suffrage. Is there a relationship there? Absolutely. That women who had been working for generations, really, on the 19th Amendment, the Women's Suffrage Amendment, um, in February of 1920, saw that it might pass and converted their grassroots operation into a mighty political experiment for the women who were now, they hoped, going to get the vote um, to be organized around exercising it. So it was from the beginning a grassroots activist organization that aimed to turn women out to vote and make sure that they knew how to cast an informed vote. Um, And so chapters were formed of the League of Women Voters all over the country. Today we're in all 50 states, I think 500, maybe maybe 800 local chapters. Um, And, you know, the, the work that we set out to do in 1920 remains a vital concern making sure that we have a shared equity in our democracy, that everybody has an opportunity to exercise their franchise, 
that everybody votes, that everybody's vote counts. Um, you know, these are still very, very important concerns. And when the 19th Amendment passed, you know, we say, well, you know, women got the vote. Well, it was only really white women that got the vote. Right. And some of the inequities that were there on day one of the 19th Amendment persist in our society today. Marginalized communities, both men and women, still have difficulty casting their ballot. And this is the work of the League of Women Voters into our second century. I guess I should give out the phone number since I invited people to call in. The number is 469-0500. If you'd like to join the conversation, you can go back to one of the topics we've already discussed or and ask a question of Anne as we're talking about the uh, League of Women Voters. Anne Luther is past president and currently secretary or treasurer? Treasurer. treasurer. And she also hosts uh, the uh, program that you've probably heard here on WERU for the past several years, Democracy Forum, which you can catch this coming Friday at 4 o'clock, and she'll be delving into caucuses and primaries. Super and Tuesday su- comes to Maine, March okay. 3rd. Okay, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. And we'll talk hopefully a little bit about that today, too. So... League of Women Voters puts out these um, election guides for, for uh, what, every two years, I think. I have one for 2018. We, we generally do it in general election years. It's mm-hmm. a big printed guide. Um, started out as an easy-to-read guide, so it's written in very plain, understandable English so that you know everybody can pick it up and, and read it. It started out as uh, 10,000 copies, I think was our first run. This year we're going to do 100,000 copies. Um, so it's been just about every every two years in general election years, and it covers candidates for state for statewide and federal office as well as statewide ballot questions. And what are some of the categories that you rate people under? Well, we um, again, it's an easy to read voter guide, and mm-hmm. so we we generally have three or four fairly general questions that allow the candidates to present themselves. We're not like saying these are the five issues and we're going to give you a grade on those issues. We're saying, you know, what are the most important priorities that you want to put across? What qualifies you for office? You know, there are some of these general questions that we ask and the, the answers are presented in the candidate's own words. And then we do a similar thing for the ballot questions. What does a yes vote mean? What does a no vote mean? What do the proponents think? Why do the proponents think this is a good idea? Why do the opponents think it's a bad idea? Again, in very easy to read language. And I, you know, some like we we got this ballot question coming up this week, which is a people's veto, and the people's veto, the wording on those ballot questions is always so tricky because it has to be worded so that yes supports repeal. So it's automatically a double negative right out the get-go. So anyway, coming back to the, the voter's guide, I think having letting people have something right in front of them that says a yes vote means this, a no vote means that is pretty helpful to people. Is there a printed edition of the voter's guide going into this uh, into primary season? No, there's an online guide. It's at vote411.org. You can get the information there. Uh, there's a little bit of information on our website, lwvme.org, about the, the ballot question, what the yes vote means and what the no vote means. But the online guide is at vote411.org, and that will be available for the March 3rd primary as well as for the June primary. And then in the November general election, we'll have the 100,000 copies of the printed guide as well as an online version. Anne has just made reference to two primaries, and this is a matter of some confusion. The yeah, March 3rd primary is a presidential primary. This, 
Um, There's also the state referendum question, uh, and in one district there's a, uh, a special election to replace a, a vacancy. I think that's Brewer, right? In Brewer, yeah. that's correct. Uh, uh, Archie Vero was my seatmate in the legislature, and he passed on in December. So mm-hmm. his seat became available, uh, and uh, a uh, special election to fill that vacancy is also occurring March 3rd. But um, uh, June 9th is the state primary election. That's when uh, candidates running for state offices um, are uh, on the primary ballot. And uh, and other federal offices as well. The state, U.S. Senate and U.S. Congress will be primary that day as well. Uh, thank you. Of course, the general election is November 3rd. And just to be clear, although the presidential primary on March 3rd in Maine is a primary, the parties themselves, the three recognized parties in, in Maine, the Democrats, Republicans, and the Green Independents, all hold caucuses. Uh, the Democrats are holding their caucuses um, on March 8th, I believe, um, and the Republicans and the Green Independents are holding caucuses in various towns on various dates in both in, in January, February, and March. Uh, the purpose of the caucuses has to do with uh, uh, the, the party business, uh, electing delegates for uh, going to conventions and so forth. Um, as in, in past times, uh, some of the presidential uh, selections have bun- been done through a caucus mechanism, and that's not being done this time. It's being done through the primary mechanism. But that does not mean that there are not caucuses in many of the towns in the state. All right. We have a, a uh, go to a call from a listener. I just want to mention before I forget, though, as we go to this, the Republicans have already started caucusing. Yes. As have the Greens. Uh, and, the, and the Greens are only caucusing. They're not going to do the primary process. Is my correct. That's correct. Okay. Caller, what's your name? Where are you calling from? I'm David. I'm calling from Brooklyn. Hey, David. What's on your mind? Uh, well, two things. Uh, one, I just wanted to make sure that this was crystal clear in my mind that when we go to vote on the 3rd of March, which is coming up very soon, uh, we are requested to vote for our uh, party preference in the presidential race. Is that correct? Yes. Y- yes. We have so a that's close. That's a very good reason to go to the polls on the third. Absolutely, but I... we're used to waiting. We're used to waiting for the uh, caucus to come up. Yes, but I want to just point out that even if you're not in a party you can vote on question one. And so even non-party people should go to the polls on March 3rd because that referendum question exactly. is Exactly, and that brings me to my second point or question, which was if we could have a wee bit of discussion on question one, for example, a description of what it is. I can give a description uh, of what it is, but we're not going to get into a discussion of it today because we don't have anybody here from either side to talk about it. And... Uh, that's something that we would do only if we had people. It's a complicated issue with strong feelings on both sides, so that's not. We won't get into it, but yeah, let me read I, what I it hope actually we will says. We'll have a chance to talk about that before the third, which is coming up first. Well, yeah, no, I don't think that's going to happen. None of the yeah, programmers that have programs before then are able well, to put something. That's a great shame. I wondered whether it might be possible to at least talk about the the two different uh, the, about the the question of financing of these referendum issues. 
Uh, I'd, it's it's yeah, notable who's financing these, this particular referendum. Okay, yep. also not something that we're talking about today, but thanks for your uh, questions. And I'll go ahead and read that uh, referendum question the way it's going to read. Question one will read, do you want to reject the new law that removes religious and philosophical exemptions to requiring immunization against certain communicable diseases for students to attend schools and colleges and for employees of nursery schools and healthcare facilities? So it's it's pretty straightforward, except like Ann said, it's one of those, you know, vote yes for no or no for yes yeah. thing. So just read it. It's not really super so convoluted. A yes vote is a vote to repeal the new law, reinstating the exemptions. A no vote is to uphold the law and get rid of the exemptions. Right. Okay. Yeah. And and I you know, it's one of those things that I think people pretty much know which side they're on already. I don't think there's much that could be said at this point that's going to change anyone's mind on this regard. But we don't have any experts here to talk about it. So people could call in and say the study says this or the study says that. We don't have anybody to say sort through what's actually factual or not. So that's why we're not gonna do that today. Who can you were saying that people can show up and just vote in the primaries. There's been uh people being just out i mean even trump has like been very public just calling people to go in and mess with the democratic primaries and caucuses well it's too late if you're a republican the deadline to switch to the democratic party was last week so it's only unenrolled voters that can do can, can show still up show up and, and enroll so if you're unenrolled you can show up on election day and enroll in either party and vote that party's primary um, you then have to stay in that party for 90 days, which probably means you'll have to still be a Republican or a Democrat, whichever you choose. You'll still be that come June. So, you know, make your choice wisely. Um, but you have to be a party member to vote in the primary. But again, you do not have to be in a party to vote on the re on the referendum. And you can enroll and um, register to vote up to and including on Election Day. All right. Well, I want to get back to the League of Women Voters a little bit, because one of the other things that I see, I think it comes weekly, is this under the dome email blast that you do. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. You know, our, our advocacy team is uh, about mm, 12 volunteers and a couple of professional support people. And we cover legislation on elections and voting. So if it has to do with elections, if it has to do with campaign finance, if it has to do with how voting runs, we're going to follow that bill, um, you know, right through the committee process to the floor debate. Um, in a legislative session, you know, both the first and the second, we probably follow 100 bills and testify on quite a few, quite a few of them. The ones that are uh, of high importance to, to us are the ones that affect voting rights, whether people can or can't vote, right. voter turnout, um, the conduct of elections, um, campaign finance reform, you know, these high-priority bills, and we will choose a few of those that are important to us um, and highlight them in this weekly newsletter so that people know which public hearings are coming up that week, which work sessions are coming up that week, what are the real issues that are at stake on those bills. Um, if it's close to the wire, there may be an action, a call to action, call your legislature, uh, legislator on this side or the other side of the bill. Um, so the list, it's a curated list of the elections and, and voting legislation that's coming up. Um, for that week, and it comes out every Monday during the legislative session. And how do people sign up for that? You can do that right on the website. If you go uh, to our homepage, lwvme.org, you'll see right at the top of the page, there's a like a sign-up button there. You can just sign right up and 
get everything we've got. All right. Let me remind listeners again, you are listening to Main Currents on WERU-FM. I'm Amy Brown. My guests who are still remaining with us are Ann Luther of the League of Women Voters and Ralph Chapman, former state legislator. Speaking of state legislators, with these email blasts that uh, League of Women Voters is really trying to be nonpartisan about things, and I want to touch back with you about how you do that. But as a former legislature, legislator, are there... Uh, are any of these on the radar of the people who are, are making the laws, these voter guides that different organizations put out or uh, recommendations on different pieces of legislature like that? So my first interaction with the legislature was as a citizen uh, going to testify on a matter of importance to me, and I was aware that I was the only person in the room who was not paid to be there. Legislators are paid to be there. I've calculated my pay around $14 an hour. Lobbyists are there. Uh, some of their pay is in the hundreds of dollars per hour. Uh, some are volunteers. Um, the lobbying organizations or the organizations that do lobbying in front of the legislature, uh, some have a, a good reputation um, for providing useful and helpful information to legislators, and some have a poor reputation for um, um, more or less haranguing rather than providing useful information. Now, one of the key elements, though, that unfortunately is not well understood is that and influencing a legislator's vote might be done through good information coming through lobbyists or through citizens or through constituents. But if the legislator, him or herself, is going to follow the direction of their legislative leader, that is to say, if they're going to vote the way they're told to vote, then uh, they're not likely to be... Uh, uh, per, uh, persuaded or dissuaded uh, by either a lobbyist or a con constituent. And uh, in my experience, an unfortunate large number of legislators um, do follow the way they're told to vote. I, I was a first-generation politician, and at the f my first day there, I was told how to vote on my very first vote, and I, I took offense. I, I was offended that that happened. I didn't understand that that was normal process. So they just like take you aside and say this is the way we expect you to vote or yes, how do they do that? Exactly. Wow. Well, I'm yes, precisely. It, please vote yes. And I reached over and voted no. Um and that is why I never got a, a committee assignment I asked for. That's why I uh, half of my bills were killed by my own party. That's why I was eventually uh, uh, hounded out of my party, actually bullied out of my party. But uh, your constituents liked you. You were elected four times and term limited oh, out, so uh, the constituents appreciated what you were doing. Uh, apparently. <laughs> yes. As you crossed party lines back and forth. But that pressure, that's that's real. I mean, you hear about that at the federal level, but you don't necessarily think that it happens as much on a state level. I call that a corrupting influence, uh, corrupting in the sense that it, it takes away from the, the, the thought processes, the, uh, the influence that constituents might have on, on their representative. Um, a typical thing, uh, you know, we encourage citizens to be involved with our government and to uh, write or call or email or otherwise communicate with their elected officials. Uh, there is this unfortunate corrupting influence in which the loyalty within the party structure is one that at the moment is far more important in determining how someone votes 
And we've certainly seen that at the national level. I can't speak to it directly, but I saw it uh, very much at the at the state level. Yeah, well, you know, parties are parties, and party cohesion is party power. And, you know, that's how power gets built, and you can't sort of blame them for for trying to build power and hold it together. You know, I'm not anti-party at all. Um, you know, on the, on the other hand, I can also see, especially from a money and politics angle, where, you know, money does influence the party agenda, and um, where it's corporate money that does, you know, sort of come into the agenda. And, um, you know, these are all things that citizens have to be watchful of. I will say, on the other hand, though, that the League of Women Voters being a mostly volunteer organization, you know, when, when we as volunteers stand up in front of the committee and give our testimony, it, it is different than having a paid lobbyist give the testimony. Here, this is testimony that's been written by somebody who put their own time into it without... Um, remuneration and is trying to bring a perspective and a level of scholarship to the committee that they might not be able to get from anywhere else. So I've always felt that the league has been treated respectfully in committee, and I can cite many examples where our people calling their legislator changed somebody's mind. That happens all the time. So I wouldn't ever want to discourage somebody from making that call because it really matters. And like right now, we are looking for five votes on the main ERA, five votes. And um, if you happen to know, this was a... Uh, Explain that, what that is for anyone who doesn't know. And let me give the phone number again. It's 469-0500 if you'd like to join us. Go ahead in. So we're, we, uh, the main ERA, you know, the federal ERA has been stuck. It's starting to move along a little bit in the whole question. The federal ERA will be on the democracy forum in March, so stay tuned for that. But in, in Maine, while the federal ERA was not moving... Um, Representative Lois Reckett and some others brought forward a main ERA. It's to put into the main state constitution that sex discrimination um, will not be tolerated. Well, it got bipartisan support in the Senate, passed with two-thirds in the Senate. Both Republicans and Democrats supported it. And it got a good majority in the House, but it didn't get any Republicans in the House, and it needs two-thirds. So at this point, it needs five Republicans to cross over and vote for uh, uh, the main ERA banishing sex discrimination in the workplace and elsewhere in Maine. And so if you happen to know a Republican legislator in the House of Representatives that might be amenable to an appeal from a constituent, I would urge you to have that conversation. I would ask Ralph how likely he thinks that is, but I think I know the answer to that. <laughs> well, so the question is, how many uh, legislators will do something other than follow the instruction from their leader? Um, um, it, it's, it's, a, it's a fluid situation, and, and I, I can't speak for anyone, but this is one of the reasons why I was ambivalent about term limits when I started, but came to love them by the time I ended my tenure of service. And that is that uh, new people coming in uh, bring enthusiasm and energy uh, and some idealism, but they are also not yet corrupted by that mechanism of uh, 
promising, unyielding loyalty uh, in the spite of uh, their better judgment. Well, we'll have to disagree about term limits also, Ralph. <laughs> the <laughs> League of okay. Women Voters was the lead litigant trying to get it overturned when it first passed. To make it that there aren't any term limits? Yeah, no Why? term. Well, I mean, it, in, our, in our view, it's removing choice from the, it's just one more way of narrowing the choice that citizens have. If you have a great legislator who is really doing a good job, who knows the needs of their district, has built up over experience the skills, the political skills to get legislation passed, and it's not that easy. A lot more bills die than get passed. If you've got a legislator who has those qualities, why should you have to give them up? If you would w willingly reelect that person, why should somebody tell you you can't have that representative anymore? It's, it's changed the balance of power between the executive branch and the legislative branch. It's transferred expertise to the lobby instead of the legislature. It has, in, in my estimation, n not made the legislature a, a stronger uh, branch of government. How about the presidency? So when Trump decides that he's going to try to make it so that he can be president for life, which he's hinted yeah. at, uh, with the league support term yeah, limits no, that, for I mean, president. That, that's a totally different story. Okay. Right. <laughs> All right. Uh, so shifting gears back to the uh, the presidential election and the the um, the uh, campaigns that are going on now, one of the things that's really getting a lot of attention is Michael Bloomberg joining the race, whether or not. I mean, so many different issues raised by this, uh, not the least of which is buying an election, whether or not he can do that. But it really, in some ways, is almost like a mirror image of Donald Trump. And the fact that they are going at each other and that Bloomberg came right back with the name calling, I think grabbed a lot of people's attention. You know, there's no, he's, all of these tapes are being released now with him saying really sexist things. This morning, Democracy Now! was reporting on a, a, a recording that had surfaced of him sounding like he was kind of denigrating how much brains it takes to be a farmer. You know, you dig a hole, you put a seed in it, you put, you know, put the dirt back on, you water it, and then, you know, that's that. But to be a tech worker, you have to have some brains or gray matter is what he said. So he's all kinds of offensive things, but he's kind of on a roll with some people for kind of the same reasons I think Trump was on a roll, which is just gloves off, we're just going to go bat to bat and just say whatever's on our mind and call each other's names. And it creates quite a spectacle. This is pure speculation. Amy Freed's no longer with us. She told me last time she doesn't do speculations. But <laughs> I'll uh, ask the two of you if you want to speculate or comment on how far he can succeed with this, with left and right both coming out, criticizing his politics and his policies and being concerned about him financing, just buying this campaign. I mean, I, I am beyond... Um, what's the right word, surprise at how far outrage could take a candidate, right? Because at, after the 2016 election, you know, I never expected that outcome, and look what happened. So, you know, whether that kind of stirring up of emotion and making outrageous comments is going to be attractive to the electorate, I would not discount it, not, not for a minute. I think this is another example of where money corrupts in politics. Uh, uh, Ann Luther made reference to uh, money's corrupting mechanisms. Uh, one of them is in campaign finances, and that's what the public sees, the uh, the, the, the advertising that's uh, 
purchased and put on television or the advertising that comes in our mailboxes or that we're flooded with uh, over uh, social media uh, mechanisms. Uh, another form of uh, money corruption is uh, money uh, that is, goes into high-paid lobbyists that are there on a daily basis that therefore have greater influence than the typical citizen who is not able to uh, maintain that type of presence in front of the legislature. And then a third type of uh, corrupting influence in money is uh, the political action committees that's where the state house party leaders get their power is through the corporate donations to their political action committees from which they purchase the loyalty of the caucus members and that's that's a form of corruption that the public does not see and then this is a, a fourth way in which a candidate simply uh, spends hundreds of hundreds of millions of dollars to uh, to buy their way into uh, a situation of potentially being elected. Uh, I, I think all of those mechanisms are corrupting of the mechani of, of, of our democracy. Well, and um, you know, we are at a moment of um, media transformation that is on a scale like the Gutenberg Press. Like when the Gutenberg Press came out, it created huge disruptions that you know we forget about now, but. Um, you know, we are seeing the same kind of disruptions in our civil discourse with the change in social media and people's reliance on it over print media and newspapers. It's it's a big change, and we haven't really seen that sort itself out or shake out yet. Um, I don't think we've seen the end of, of that disruption. But, you know, people looking at I said another example. If you look back at the first televised debate, I think it was Kennedy and Nixon way back when, right? You would be astonished at the level of serious policy discussion that they had. I mean, wonky. This is what it means. This is why it's that. Right down in there. You, we don't get that anymore at all. Um, not not even in the best print media coverage, much less on social media. So there's definitely been a, a shift in the public discourse around elections and the public policy issues that matter in elections. And we citizens have to take some responsibility for going after the information we need to make sound choices and rejecting information that we cannot verify as um, solid and well-sourced. We have time for uh, one more call. If somebody wants to call 469-0500 and ask a question, make a comment, I'm checking the email also at news at weru.org. I didn't see it. I heard it and wasn't paying full attention. But today it sounded like on the way to or from a helicopter, somebody Trump stopped for a few minutes for questions. And uh, he said that he loves social media because it gives him a voice. It gives him a platform. Uh, this from a person who hasn't held a press conference in how many months? So uh, I think your point is well taken. I, do you have any thoughts about, you know, what can be done about this? If any, there were calls for a while for his Twitter account to be suspended, uh, and and also lawsuits about people being blocked from his Twitter account. Or LePage, same thing because they were uh, using it for official communication. So. You know, people should have access to it. But uh, do you think he should be banned from Twitter? 
do you think Twitter should be banned from the universe? Any thoughts about no, <laughs> how I, to correct that problem? <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, th- this has been a big cultural shift, having the president tweet as freely as he does. You know, Many I mean, times fir- a day. And it, when it first came out, you will remember stock prices moved. You know, companies went waxed and waned, depending on the latest tweet of the day. I think we've all sort of adjusted to a certain level of instability in that so that we're not seeing that kind of overreaction to it. And I think that kind of direct communication with our populace, I mean, he's not the only one that does it anymore. On the other hand, his own attorney general has asked him to please stop. So, you know, possibly some guardrails would not be such a bad idea. He's so boring when he follows the uh, <laughs> teleprompter or, or when somebody, you can tell when he's tweeting versus when somebody in the administration is tweeting. Any thoughts about that, Ralph? Well, you know, when I started in the legislature, I was uh, somewhat discouraged when I realized it was the worst job I'd ever had. And, and, uh, <laughs> so I, I, I went to a, 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 someone in the legislature who had been there for a number of years and uh, uh, we had a mutual friend, and I, I, I said to him, it was uh, Representative uh, Dave Webster, and I, I thank him very much. I said to him, I said, Dave, um, do you like this job? And and he said, no. And I was about to ask a follow-on question when he immediately went on and said, but I think it's an important job and should be done well. And I, I used that as uh, a way to understand why I was there and what I was to do. What's necessary, of course, is that um, that we uh, raise the level of civility, we raise the level of uh, uh, discourse such that we actually deal with the issues, we deal with the potential solutions to those problems uh, uh, that we identify and, and so forth, and, and get away from the... Uh, uh, the elementary school level uh, bullying and and um, uh, ill behavior. Now, uh, how to do that? Um, I, I I'd say it's everyone's responsibility to try to go in that direction, but I don't have a specific suggestion. So you're not now. cheering on Bloomberg as he calls uh, Trump a uh, circus barker. No, no. I, uh, I I think that uh, identifying uh, problems. Uh, uh, Bernie Sanders, for instance, has been calling has consistently been calling Trump a pathological liar. Well, I, I, I he's has a, a a point. Now, is that is that too harsh uh, to say that someone's a pathological liar? I. Uh, from people that I've known and uh, circumstances that I've I, I've known uh, people who sounded very sincere, who did not seem to appreciate or understand the difference between the, the truth and and falsehood, and and uh, so in that sense, I, I I can understand why the term pathological liar might be used, but. Um, I, I don't think it's helpful to uh, to denigrate people uh, on the Would basis. Would you be more comfortable if you just called him a liar and pointed out the lies and didn't use the term pathological? Uh, well, I, I would prefer that. I, I don't actually use the term lying uh, I, um, because to me, uh, uh, someone who lies, I think, I think there's the implication that that's intentional, and it, it may be, but I, I can't know someone else's intention. So if you say something to me that I think is false, I might say, that's not true, or that's false. I wouldn't say you are lying. At least I mean, that's the way I, I, I try to behave in my own personal discourse. 
um, because I, d I don't want to inject myself into a spot where I'm making assumptions about what your intent is. I, I just Maybe it was a mistake that uh, you said a falsehood, or maybe uh, it's a disagreement that we have, but uh, it, it, it tones down the emotionality of it. Uh, if we identify it as a falsehood, we identify what the truth of the matter is, um, we source it, we identify the source of the information, etc., so do you think that uh, intellectual, um, ethical, calm, these are terms I'm throwing on it, but that approach to politics has a chance of succeeding or will it be completely bowled over in this world of drama, flashy, name-calling politics, and how does it survive in the light of that? Well, what... What gives me a little bit of hope is in my personal experience in my district, I, I ran into, of course, half the people in my district would have preferred somebody else rather than myself. Uh, but, but one fellow came up to me at one point and said, uh, uh, you must be my representative. And I, I thought he was mistaking me for someone else, but I introduced myself. And he then proceeded to say, I uh, probably disagree with you on everything but I appreciate the columns you write in the newspaper. And I thought to myself, there's a success. Right. Um, the fact that he disagrees with me is no problem. The fact that he could be respectful is And that wonderful. he even read your column, knowing that he probably was going to disagree. That's actually, either, right? that's a good point. Right. We have about 30 seconds for each of you to make a last comment. Um, and you want to go first? Well, um, Election Day is coming up March 3rd. Um, I hope that everybody will take advantage of the opportunity to participate in Maine's first presidential primary in 20 years. And um, even if you're not going to vote in the primary, question one needs your attention. So everyone to the polls, March 3rd. I, I, would, I would certainly second that. Uh, we, we, we need people to be involved. Uh, after you vote, uh, consider other ways to stay involved with your government. I don't think you've sold anybody on actually being a candidate, though, today, well, Ralph. Uh, well, <laughs> it's we'll save that for another show. <laughs> it's an important job and deserves to be done well. Yes, <laughs> That's, you, that actually was a good quote. All right. So you've been listening to Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture, the elections 2020 edition. Uh, Maine Currents airs on the first and third Tuesday of every month from 4 to 5 o'clock. And this third Tuesday of the month edition will be focused on the 2020 elections through November, maybe beyond. I'm Amy Brown. My guests today were Professor Amy Freed, Chair of the Political Sciences Department at the University of Maine, former state legislator, legislator Ralph Chapman and Ann Luther of the League of Women Voters and host of Democracy Forum here on WERU. Be sure to tune in on Friday. This coming Friday, 4 to 5 o'clock, you'll be talking about caucuses, primaries. Super Tuesday comes to Maine, March 3rd. Super Tuesday comes to Maine, March 3rd, if you didn't catch that. Uh, thanks to John Greenman for engineering today's program. You can subscribe to podcasts of our locally produced news and public affairs programs or just listen to our archives at weru.org. Be sure to check out the new WERU app and keep it tuned here now for Radio Eco Shop coming up next here on WERU-FM. 89.9 Blue Hill and streaming online at WERU.org. Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from Finelli Pizzeria, 12 Down East Highway, Ellsworth, serving thin crust pizza pies and slices, craft beers, sandwiches, and subs, and opening at 11 a.m. daily. 664-0230, FinelliPizzeria.com. Welcome.